Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning to all those landlocked listeners out there and those lost at sea. A big, big uh, welcome. It's all things salty and wet today on Radio Marinara. And um, in an act of madness, the cabin boy has uh, been put in charge of the show. But we do have someone Skyping in all the way from Phillip Island. Welcome. No, Cade's not there. Try this again. Yes. Welcome, Cade. That's it. There was always going to be a bit of a hiccup with Cabin Boy at the helm. Well, it's an act of madness. I can't believe I'm uh, steering the whole ship from the studio here. So, uh, <laughs> ably assisted, though, from you. Yes. Yes. We've got a massive show today, Cabin Boy. Yeah. I know. Hey, a big, big thanks to uh, Glenn, too, for filling in at the last moment for uh, Tim to get us through the, uh, the morning. Well, that just confirms that Tim is human. I was wondering whether he was a robot, he was a droid of some sort, because he was constantly on every weekend, but he does have a weakness. He, he has faltered. And a yes. big, big thanks, too, to Action Dan. He filled in for us last weekend, and uh, I th- I'm sure Melbourne woke up and thought, oh, no, no Radio Marinara, but then he did ch- uh, kind of play a lot of great tunes, and I did get that cosy Sunday morning feeling at the end of that. So thanks, Action Dan. Certainly. Hey, what have we got on today? You've uh, arranged quite a few things. Yeah, so to kick off the show, we're going to be chatting with Marilyn Olive from the Hobson's Bay Wetlands Centre. So um, she's been more busy basically founding this whole uh, this whole place and this whole idea, and we're going to have a chat to her about some amazing wetlands over in the western part of um, Melbourne that most people are probably unaware of and these plans for a centre to enjoy them. Well, they're often forgotten and overlooked, aren't they, the wetlands, but they are so important. Well, they are. They're often referred to, along with mangroves, as the armpit of the coast. Oh, really? Yes, there's a lot of work going on to raise the profile of that, and so we're going to chat to Marilyn about that. And ripe Uh, for development too, aren't they? You know, those wetlands. They have been historically, and, you know, I think we're trying to change that now, especially the role they're playing in carbon capture. We're really starting to learn more, and Margaret sort of, um, and the group out there are starting to team up with um, scientists to learn a bit more about that as well. Then we're going to quickly, now this wasn't on the cards until yesterday, and I got a text off Dave Donnelly saying that there were some Antarctic type sea whales sighted off Phillip Island, and he was buzzing and everyone is buzzing. So we're actually going to find out why that's so cool and what's so amazing about that. So we're going to have a quick chat to him about that. And I think part of that is killer whales aren't often sighted, but I think it's also the type, and we're going to find out what Antarctic type sea killer whales actually means and, yeah, why this sighting is so exciting. And then... We're finally going to get back into the oh, back on air is Prue Francis. So Prue's been with us for a while now, talking all things ocean literacy. And back in May, she released a book. So she was basically walking the walk, um, had done a lot of research around ocean literacy, and has now finally published a book. So we're going to get her on and talk about the process of that, a bit about what the book's about and what's been happening in the ocean literacy space. And then I believe we're over to you, Cabin Boy. Yeah, well... It's been a pretty long, cold winter already, so I thought we'd visit bareboat chartering in the with Sundays, how to go about it and what it actually means. So only if we have time, though. 
<laughs> uh, it got me thinking. You mentioned that we're going to talk about it. I'm like, I couldn't think of anything I would much rather be doing at the moment, yeah, especially after that wind last night. Oh. I um, was trying to find quotes about how windy it can be. And the one I liked the most is someone on the beach saying it was so windy that the sand sandblasted my tattoo off. <laughs> so <laughs> it was that kind of wind yesterday. Oh, not good. Hey, um, there's um, a big shout out to Bron too. Uh, I started a few rumours about why she's not on, such as um, <laughs> she uh, she's still recovering from the bends from a deep dive into the uh, into the her favourite kind of um, what, what's her favourite musical? Um, the oh, uh, Hamilton. Hamilton, yes. yes. So she's still yep. recovering from that. I also ho- heard she lost a toe at, to a wobbegon shark attack in the shallows of Elwood Beach, so she's recovering. And then another rumour I heard about her is she slipped on some squid ink wh- while trying to uh, recreate a recipe from season two MasterChef. So, um, <laughs> so big love to Bron. She'll be back shortly. Yeah, well, I actually heard that she's going to come back as Bionic Bronze and um, play for the Megahertz next year. Could be true. Could be (laughs) true. Could be true. Yeah. Uh, Any other news you've got there from uh, Phillip Island? Because I heard that they caught the uh, fox on Phillip Island. There was one fox and they caught it. I did. And it's one of those things when you live in a place, like I was aware that there were no foxes on Phillip Island before I moved here. I'd been and heard people talk about it, but I didn't realise how much it has captured the attention of basically everyone in the town. Yeah. Like it is something that everyone is talking about. It's kind of like whales. Like it's, you know, everyone's talking about the whale season, where they're sighting them, how many they've seen and things like that. And there's the conversation around the fox. And I think part of it is because there's cameras on San Remo Bridge mm-hmm. and they're there to monitor fox traffic. Camps. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Fox Cam, basically. And it wasn't picked up on Fox Cam. So part of it is like, oh, how did it get here? Was it? And one of the theories that I'm quite interested in, I think we'll have to get someone on from Phillip Island Nature Parks to talk about this more, is the idea that they can swim really well. Yeah, he must have been desperate, or she must have been desperate to swim across that strait, though. Yeah, well, it's not something, I mean, people do it. They do it every year. There's a swimming event across there. But yeah, you'd want to pick your tides. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah. To get through there. So, yeah, it, fortunately it has been caught. It spent two months loose on the island, and the concern was obviously for the penguins. It was one of the main predators. So um, they used um, dogs, they used cameras, they used all sorts of stuff to basically find it and then um, euthanize it. So Phillip Island is, is back to being fox-free. Because it's not just the penguins. It's also the mutton birds and the Cape Barren geese too that they'd be uh, chomping away on. Yes, it is. And there's been, there have been Cape Barren geese are everywhere. Yeah. And I think part of that is part, and, and the wallabies, due to the foxes no longer being on the island. So, yeah. yeah, no, that was great news. Now, you did mention that biting cold wind. Uh, what are we looking at today, weather wise? Oh, yes. It's a joyful day. If you're rugged up in bed, um, stay there. I don't, Stay there, unless you're a surfer. The wind's northerlies at the moment, so it means it's offshore at pretty much every break, but it is swinging around to the northwest and then eventually to the west. There's about three or four foot of swell, so it is good conditions. Probably wear a hood, keep your head warm, because that wind sort of cuts straight through. But, yeah, conditions are good for a wave, but otherwise, if you're not into that, it's going to be potentially 7 to 15 mils of rain today. So it's going to be a wet day. And top of, I think, what, today we've got a top of 15 degrees, Tomorrow we have a top of 11. Wow. So, yeah, it's sort of feeling it. But then we've actually, it's getting nicer as the week goes on. We've got some 13s, 14s, 16 on Friday and eventually 17 on Saturday. So we're pushing up high. Chilly nights. Yeah. I did notice on the uh, socials that uh, quite a few people said, oh, I'm not diving today, tuning into Radio Marinara. So the weather <laughs> does have a positive uh, aspect to it. 
It's good that we can provide an alternative. Now, uh, um, first guest, Cade, who, uh, who have we got here? Yeah, so look, a large number of Melbournians live you know, in the west of the city, yet many along with those, and even including those in the city, have no idea about the internationally recognised Ramsar-listed teeth and wetlands that is on their doorsteps. The Hobson's Bay Wetlands Centre has been working to change this and has grand plans for the future of this amazing habitat. So to fill us in on all things Hobson's Bay Wetlands Centre, we have the founder and chair, Marilyn Olive, on the line. Welcome to Radio Marinara, Marilyn. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk about this, my favourite subject. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, you're in the right place. It's the perfect time to talk about it. Now, before we get into the Hobson's Bay Wetlands Centre, I just want to ask a little bit about the wetlands themselves. Um, At the start of the show, I used the phrase, the armpit of the coastline is what they have been referred to. But they're actually quite amazing. Can you tell us first up where the Chiefham wetlands are and the role that they play? Uh, the Chinon wetlands, they're along the Port Phillip Bay foreshore and they sort of extend from Altona to Point Cook. It's only 25 kilometres from the CBD and it's home to a huge range of animals and plants, especially birds, of course. The really cool thing about them that, that gets everyone excited around here is that in the summer, thousands of migratory birds fly down from the Northern Hemisphere to summer with us. And it's just an amazing sight. And they, they not only are in Cheetham wetlands, but they move uh, quite along the foreshore for some way uh, for feeding grounds and so on. And as you said, it's, it's really important. Um, it's internationally recognised under the Ramsar Convention. Uh, but it is very vulnerable to uh, the potential of urban development, pollution. It needs our care and it needs our protection. It is protected. Um, Part of it comes under Parks Victoria, and so uh, there are quite a number of us keeping an eye on it. Wetlands are amazing. They're they're just the sort of, as you say, I've never heard them called an armpit before, but um, (laughs) I have to say that, you know, the way that they can uh, help reduce pollution from runoff that they are habitats for amazing range of ecosystems. You've got right from the tiny, tiny microorganisms right through to uh, large birds and also some mammals, although we're not blessed with very many mammals along the foreshore of Hobson's Bay in this area, but they do provide um, an amazing place for us human beings to keep our environment clean. And so basically my next question you've obviously expressed how much you enjoy them and how much you love them and I think you've sort of answered it in that so the impetus for setting up the Hobson's Bay Wetland Centre is obviously sharing this passion with other people did I get it right? That's quite right I mean I think the the sort of fundamental thing that that many of us um, who are passionate about the environment come from is we, we know that we need a healthy natural environment it doesn't matter who we are doesn't matter where we are we need clean air and clean water and we need it um, to survive, let alone thrive. So we have a passion about getting everyone else to uh, join us in protecting the environment. And I, I'm, I'm one of those people, my heroes of uh, the great environmentalists like Jane Goodall and David Suzuki and David Attenborough, they all talk about the need to understand our natural environment before we can actually get people to care about it. And so a few of us, quite a number of years ago now, were sitting around 
coming up with ideas of how can we get everyone in their busy lives to pay attention to the environment and to help us care for it. And the, the under, idea sort of stemmed from that. And it, it's morphed and it's been a long journey, a fairly long journey. And so now we've got the Hobson's Bay Wetland Centre Association, which is great. And, and so what have you been doing since you started? You said it's been quite a long journey. I'm sure you've done many things along the way. And how have you started, I guess, bringing people into this world so they can understand it better? Well, we really got off the ground um, after all that, those years of discussion and lobbying for fun. Uh, we really got off the ground in 2018 when we became an incorporated association. Um, we are now, I'm proud to say, we're a volunteer-run registered charity. Uh, we hold open days for the community, well, indeed, anyone who would like to come, COVID permitting, of course. We run walks and talks. We have specialist workshops. We try to attract a wide audience right through from art, uh, science and art, um, through to some more uh, exciting, for me at least, on the ground stuff where you put your waders in and you can do some uh, sampling of bugs in, in the water. We don't go, I should say, we don't go into Cheetham Wetlands itself. It's not, uh, it's not a good place to go and disturb it, but there are plenty of other wetlands and waterways around where we can play and show what's there. Yeah, and one thing I do like is you've had a couple of events and the Orb Weavers, who will be very familiar to listeners of this show, have um, you know played some music for you and been sort of present. And one of the things I guess we got you on to discuss about, you have actually have the word centre in the name, Hobson's Bay Wetland Centre, um, but you're actually working towards creating this centre, aren't you, Marilyn? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we are. And I, I will just add on your last comment. Oh, wow. At our open day in, uh, so, uh, when was it? May. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Time gets away from me. In May, the Orb Weavers came and performed for us at our open day. And it was just absolutely magical. They are, they're very aligned with our own passions and themes. So I thank them again for coming. Um, but yes, we are. Uh, we do have a, we have a, a venue. We are located in the Tragman Exposure Reserve in Queen Street, Altona. It's um, an amazing uh, historic buildings and belongs to the council, and they allow a few community groups to use it. So we work out of there at the moment. But but our big uh, our big project is working towards this unique uh, and innovative wetlands complex, which will be built just across from uh, from Laverton Creek, from where we are now. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows the Altona Sports Centre, but we're in the paddock behind that. And it will be something really amazing. We've, we've got um, a concept design with a visitor community centre, has meeting rooms, also has classrooms uh, for all ages, which can be used by schools for uh, outreach programs and so on. Uh, we've got two research laboratories because we are in a very important uh, wetlands area where a lot of research is being done and needs to be done. Uh, we'll have a, sort of in the middle a purpose-built wetlands area uh, and uh, sensory gardens, nature play areas, boardwalks, yarning circles and for me that most essential thing a cafe. <laughs> Good to see you got the priorities here. But it sounds like an you know, amazing I guess sort of hub for people to come together um, to learn more hard. about the place, yeah. but also to see other people as they're experiencing it and as they're learning more about it. 
So Sorry, you, you mentioned yeah. that you've um, got some partners and this is obviously not something that you guys are doing on their own. Like, Who are some of your partners you're working with and how are they helping you to sort of work towards this? Okay. No, we, there's no way we could do it on our own and, and we are, we're, we're thrilled to have partners. The, the main partner, I guess, is Hobson's Bay City Council. They, they looked at, at our vision and they talked to us about it um, for a while and, and they can see the potential of this, having this venue in Hobson's Bay for a, a multitude of reasons. So we signed an MOU with Hobson's Bay City Council last year with Deakin University, who of course are, are, are forerunners in research on wetlands and they're very keen to be a part of our, our area. Ecolink Science and Technology Innovation Centre. Now, uh, not so many people know about that, but it's an amazing Department of Environment STEM Centre where um, in this particular one takes students uh, on many excursions and events learning about the environment uh, in all sorts of ways. We're also partnered with Melbourne Water, uh, Great and Western Water, which is our local uh, water company, Circuit Health Innovation Hub, which is in Altona North. Uh, they are very keen on connecting people with nature for health benefits. And of course, um, BirdLife Australia, who we work with whenever we get the opportunity. Marilyn, um, you've got um, you got a few opportunities to come uh, coming up for other people to be involved, local community. Yeah, we ha- well we have we've got that sort of ongoing ongoing opportunity. If anybody's out there and wants yeah. to join us and be a volunteer, we would just love you to contact us. Um, there's all sorts of things that you can help with. You can help at our open days. You can help at our workshops. Um, and of course, there's the behind the scenes things that that have to happen. And we've got some amazing volunteers that quietly work away in the background. But we could always do with more help. But, um, for the wider community, we've got a workshop coming up on the 20th of August. It's called In the Looking Glass, and it's a celebration of Science Week, and it's going to be really a kid-focused activity at looking things through magnifying glasses and uh, just being uh, introduced to some of the amazing things in our waterways. Fantastic. Um, how else can other people show their support and find out more about the uh, Hobson's Bay wetlands? Well, the the next big event for the wider community is coming up on the 8th of, I think it's the 8th of October, it's on a Saturday. Um, it's deliberately chosen at the beginning of October because it's not only welcome back the migratory birds time of year, it's also um, very close to World Mental Health Day at the beginning of October. And that's because we are very conscious of the fact that being in nature is beneficial for people's health. And in fact, we sort of got a bit of a boost during COVID because um, people were getting out in nature more and realising that, you know, with all the lockdowns and the terrible things that are happening in their lives, just getting out and getting a breath of fresh air and looking at nature was really good for them. Yeah, you're not wrong there, Marilyn, especially um, if you can sneak out today before that weather gets any worse, that would be fantastic. Now, we will uh, be sure to share details of events that people can get involved in, and we'd love to keep checking back in with you as to how things are advancing and also when um, events are coming up that people can get on board. Thanks for your time, Marilyn. Look, that'll be great. And can I encourage everyone, find us on Facebook, Hobson's Bay Wetlands Centre, and Instagram has our latest activity so um, I'm looking forward to seeing you all at the wetland centre sometime. Perfect apologies for not getting that plug in and well done for coming through with it. (laughs) Thanks very much. (laughs) Cheers. Thanks Marilyn.
It's Radio Marinara. You're listening to the Cabin Boy and Cade. And on the phone from Killer Whales, Australia, we have Dave Donnelly. Welcome, Dave. Cabin Boy, good morning, Cade. Good morning, Dave. Look, before we get onto these Antarctic-type sea killer whales that you're excited about, we have to address the white whale in the room. And oh, that no. is the one that <laughs> recently washed up at Malakuta. Can you? I'm sure you're across this one. And explain it for those listening. Uh, let's start by saying that speculation is right. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, there's, there's, two, there's two things to think about, or a few things to think about here, Kate. Um, first of all, this is not a Megaloo's known migratory path. Um, the animal appears to be female and Megaloo's a male. The estimated body length was 10 metres and Megaloo is much bigger than that, or was, whatever. <laughs> um, not to say that this is all conclusive, this is all still... A, based on uh, photographs that have been supplied, but there's no detailed photographs. So um, the other thing to consider is that when whales die and uh, wash ashore, they lose a lot of their skin. In fact, we've seen lots of white whales, uh, including blue whales, that have, that have turned white. Um, so let's just calm the farm on this one and, and wait for the experts <laughs> to have a chat um, uh, and get those... Uh, the, the DNA samples is what's going to be conclusive. All of this other speculation is pretty much irrelevant right now, so let's just stand back and let the guys do their work. So for people not in the know, Migaloo is a famous white whale that cruised up and down the coast, wasn't it? That's correct. One of three, um, the only totally white one, and there's two others which are mostly white, which have small areas of dark pigmentation, which, of course, it could be one of those as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit of, little bit of hype at the moment. Um, whales die, just like humans do, and um, they, they unfortunately wash ashore at times, and sometimes they, uh, they uh, end up in the, in the headlines like this one. All right. Now, I would like to thank you for calming the farm on that one, Dave. And I just want to refer to a text message that I got from you yesterday. Don't know if you caught this, but Antarctic Type C killer whales were sighted off the island on Wednesday, a first for Victorian waters and just the seventh record for Australian coastal waters. Pretty incredible. Why is that so incredible, now, Dave? This is really something to be excited about, and we're not going to speculate here. We are looking at evidence. We are looking at the very first record of Antarctic type C killer whales. Now, for those who don't know what Antarctic type C is, it's the smallest of of the killer whale forms. There's 10 forms of killer whale, and Antarctic type C are the smallest. They typically inhabit the ice edge around Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, but on occasions do migrate north for reasons yet to be understood, but thought to be to dislodge diatom algae from their skin. Um, and when they come to the north, they dislodge that diatom algae. They obviously have to hunt still. They behave in the normal ways that killer whales do, and then they return presumably return and, and satellite tagging data does confirm that these um, lower latitude migrations do happen quite regularly. It's just recording those events visually is uh, quite rare, particularly in Australia. That, that's what we wanted to know, basically. <laughs> I think the farm's excited. Yes. <laughs> the farm should be excited. I'm, I'm super excited. And look, since, um, since that first sighting by Wildlife Coast Cruises, there's been a, a subsequent sighting of about 30 to 40 killer whales, type C killer whales, which is more in line with the, the ecology of these animals. They tend to hang out in very large pods, anywhere between sort of 20 and 100 animals or more. Um, so we do expect to see these large groups um, when, when we do see them. But to, to see them in Bass Strait near Phillip Island, 
unbelievable. We're so excited. We just can't wait to get all that <laughs> photo, uh, photo ID imagery coming in and seeing if we can recognise any of these animals and comparing them to catalogues both here and in New Zealand. Yeah, that, that is awesome, Dave. Look, I'm so happy that you are so excited. It was so nice to be able to tap into that just in time to get you on air. And look, keep us posted and we'll get you back on and we'll talk about these um, killer whales again later. Oh, look, and just for everybody who's worried about the humpback whales, don't worry about the humpback whales around the island. They're no risk. Type C killer whales are fish eaters. And happy anniversary <laughs> to my to my partner, Kyrie. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug, Dave. Good plug. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. We'll chat to you soon, mate. Good morning, guys. Have a great day. Oh, fantastic. Zave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia. I like how he calmed the farm and then he brought it back up again. (laughs) (laughs) You're here with uh, the cabin boy and Cade. And our next guest to the studio is... It is basically Radio Marinaras. We're going to call her our own ocean literacy researcher and advocate, um, Prue Francis. It's great to have you back on board, Prue. How have you been? Yeah, great. Thanks, Kate. Hi, Kevin Boy. Thanks for having me again. Good to be back. Now, look. Let's start off with a. We'll start off with a. What's it called? Like a, a, a lob or an easy one for you for people unfamiliar with the term <laughs> ocean literacy. Can you just give us the you know the one minute version of that? Yeah, I'll give you a short history in time. Yes. So the ocean literacy <laughs> movement is um, what I like to say, it's a small wave in a rather big ocean. <laughs> and what I mean by that is it's uh, a relatively small research field that sort of started it back in 2004 from a group of scientists and educators that with uh, recognised research indicating that citizens had a limited understanding of marine phenomena or they hold misconceptions or little understanding of marine environmental issues and protection. And so this lack of familiarity was associated with the fact that ocean concepts or marine science are rarely represented in our formal science education curriculum, not only in Australia but across the world. And so I guess from there, scientists, formal and informal educators have been grouped together from that 2004 time to try and develop uh, or define what ocean literacy is and develop techniques to improve this in our curriculum but also across society and so I guess in terms um, you can consider yourself an ocean literate person if you have an understanding of the ocean's influence on you and your influence on the ocean so not only um, do you understand what we call the seven essential ocean literacy principles, but you can then communicate about those ocean principles in a meaningful meaningful way to then make informed and responsible decisions regarding the ocean and its resources. That was well done. The potted history is exceptionally good. And look, I'll be honest with you, it um, leads on perfectly. One of the things I like about the research and the work that you do is, yes, you do the research, but then you also put it into action. And, you know, ways of improving ocean literacy are writing a book. And I believe you have done that. And congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So that was um, an idea that sprouted, I guess, during COVID lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) uh, some people um, yeah some people grew indoor plants you wrote a book well done yeah (laughs) some people killed indoor plants (laughs) (laughs) and certainly i should um give credit here to dr paul venzo co-author of of this book um and it really the idea i guess sprouted from our research but also selfishly it sprouted from being a parent um (laughs) i'm a very uh 
passionate book reader, have been um, all my life. And so when it, I became a mum, reading books to my children um, was just a, a thing that had to be done. And so my repertoire of the books that I was reading then grew out into the picture books. And of course, being a marine scientist, they had most of those were ocean themed. And what I was sort of finding during that time, whilst those books were absolutely amazing, they were skewed towards the tropical marine environment. And so not really representing our local beaches here in Southern Temperate Australia, which we like to call the Great Southern Reef. And so with a um, typical researcher hat on, myself with Paul and also Dr Alicia Belgrove at Deakin, we compiled evidence of reviewing and analysing um, 100 ocean-themed picture books. And our data did back up what uh, my observations were and that indeed there were, wasn't many representations of picture books of the marine temperate Australian um, area and so from there conversations then grew into the idea of the storybook and that led led to where we are today and we really wanted to in this book um, do several things and the first one was to represent temperate Australia and raise awareness of the Great Southern Reef and hence the title but also given that my work is in improving ocean literacy in Australia we wanted to have a little step towards that through storytelling so trying to um, improve ocean literacy in a very simple five metre story through this um, particular picture book but then also there's another layer there that those that may have read it or would like to go and read it, we're showcasing a marine, a female marine scientist and representing her as a leader and hence the uh, the name Professor uh, Seaweed is the main protagonist in the story and so um, the other thing I wanted to make sure is that this story was a simple story that had lots of ways to it. So something you could read to your child at night when you've just come out of witchy now, you've done dinner, bath, bed, and you just need the children to go to sleep and you want to read a five-minute story, uh, the Great Southern Reef can achieve that, no problems. Wow, I'm exhausted just hearing you say <laughs> all the layers that you put into that book and all the thought. And I think that leads perfectly onto one of the questions I really wanted to get you to sort of share with the listeners is that, you know, when you meet a marine scientist, they will tell you about the sexy stuff they're doing, the book that they've written, the research they've done in this amazing place and the time they spend underwater. But we often forget to talk about the drudge of hours and hours and hours in front of a computer. And so what I wanted to know is how long did it take you to get all these layers crammed into one single book? Yeah, it's a really good question. And something um, that's really, I think, needs to be talked about more because, um, you know, the idea of, oh, yeah, I'll write a book, and you see a lot of um, celebrities now bringing out, out their own picture book. But it does take time. And, in fact, if I would have put a time frame on it, it took us two years. And I'm not sure whether that was um, a COVID-influenced timeline <laughs> or not, <laughs> which it could have been. So we did start in 2020, and it was um, published in 2022 in May. And so I guess just to break that down into what happened during that time was the story writing itself. So Dr. Paul Venzo is the genius behind the story, and, and I brought the marine science layer um, to that story. That was written actually quite quickly, but it was more so pitching the idea to Cyrus publishing who are our publishers and then going through that contract negotiations and so that sort of took time and I think during 2020 is when we were navigating the you know the COVID pandemic and um, we're all busy I know here at Deakin we'll put in all of our uh, courses online so we, we were very busy as well and so I think that sort of took probably longer than than it would have in um, I guess non-COVID times and then in 2021 um, 
you know, during that stage we went through an editing and you wouldn't think that a, a story of um, 32 odd pages would require so much editing, but it did. So there's a lot of to and fro backwards of uh, back and forth with the story, fine tuning uh, what we had in there. And then, of course, the illustration started. So our illustrator is Kate James, very talented, and I'm stoked that Kate came on board to um, to, to be part of this project. And so once the illustrators, uh, illustration started, we got proofs of those um, and whether there was tweaks made or, or changes made along the way. And, in fact, I thought that was quite quick. It was sort of a six-month process. And then it sort of moved into then the marketing plans and stages and the final edits to then bring us into 2022 of when it was actually published. So uh, it did take time, but a wonderful process to be part of. And, um, and you know, I'm just thrilled to see the end product. It was definitely worth it. <laughs> now, you did mention celebrity author. Can we claim you as our celebrity author now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, my children claim me as a celebrity now that they had um, no interest in this process back in 2020 and 2021 when I was sort of showing them snippets of the book. But now that they see it actually in um, in stores, they they yell at the top of their head, "Mom, there's your picture book!" <laughs> and I go, Shh, "Don't say it too loud." And then say, "Put put the the book at the front." <laughs> so how's the book going? How's yeah, it? Yeah, good question. So. Um, as a scientist, I'd love to be able to give you data and break down. <laughs> have that um, with me right now. But what I do have is um, we've been getting fabulous feedback from a lot of people. Um, we've had quite a lot of book reviews that have come through that have been really promising and uh, really positive. And we've also had quite a lot of book selfies that people have been sending, both Paul and I, which if you've got any, uh, if you've got the book at home, please send us through a book selfie. Oh, we cool. love it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've also know that we've had sightings of it in Portugal, which is fantastic. It's made its way over to Norway, and I'm thrilled to um, announce that it's also made its way to her deepness, Dr. Sylvia Earle, where my PhD uh -oh. student met her, Katia Freitas, at the um, recent United Nations Ocean Decade Conference in Lisbon and so Katia managed to hand, personally hand the book over to Sylvia's team and um, they haven't, didn't quite get a book selfie at that stage. Was, um, <laughs> the, the conference was moving a bit too quickly but we do believe that Sylvia now has um, a copy of it so that that made my, my week when I found out that news. <laughs> so we've, had, we, we've got whale sightings now we're going to have book sightings. Yeah, I hope yeah. So. <laughs> a whole new segment. Oh, killer whale sightings. That, yeah. That's pretty uh, impressive. They are my favourite whales. So. <laughs> now, just before I move on to the next question, book selfies. Where do we send the selfie through to, Prue? And do you want oh, them? Oh, look, you, yeah. yeah, so I, <laughs> where do I want That's a good question. Um, it can be said, I guess, to my email, but I also have um, a LinkedIn and a Twitter account through Deakin University, so just go and search for me on there and you're more than welcome to send it through the messaging platform. But otherwise, yeah, feel free to flood my inbox with book selfies. It'll absolutely make my day. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, the book is called The Great Southern Reef Book. Is that correct? Yes, that's yeah, right. Good. Yep, so, all right, so look for that in your uh, book sales, yes. Yes, yeah, and be definitely. sure to, if your local bookstore doesn't have it, just get them to order it. It's mm. from CSIRO Publishers. I did that for mine on Phillip Island, so it will be turning up soon, which is great. Um, now, it's you're not only writing books and being a celebrity brew, you're also doing some research and you've got some students. What have you been up to lately? Anything cool to keep us informed of? 
Yeah, so that's um, really good segue. In so the book, what we're you know we didn't want to just write the book and put it out there and, and leave it to um, everybody to read and enjoy. We, we <laughs> ever the scientist, we wanted to um, see what the impact can for that book can potentially have in classrooms to help improve ocean literacy. And so our PhD student Katia is um, part of her PhD is to look at how children's literature or picture books can improve ocean literacy in the or, or marine science in the classroom and so Katia is using this book along with several others to uh, teach marine science concepts and so through that she's running teacher workshops later in the year so if any Victorian teachers out there in primary school that are keen to participate in this research um, workshop please get in touch as well because we'll be recruiting um, for that project later in the year so we're going to hopefully have that as evidence-based research to, you know, see that or show that these books can have a great platform to teach in the classroom because it's a familiar tool that teachers are used to reading stories to, to children and um, and bring that marine science into their classroom without having to have the perhaps marine scientific knowledge background is what we've seen as, as one of the barriers as to why it's not um, ocean literacy has not necessarily been taught as often as we would like in, in the classroom. So watch this space for the next chapter of this work and yes I use chapter <laughs> Pardon the pun there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you mentioned your um, student, Katia. She recently had some work published. Um, now, what was... I've actually, off the top of my head, forgotten what that was about, but I'm sure you know because she's your student. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. It was um, Katia's first chapter for her PhD, so we're thrilled to have that already published, and it's with um, Frontiers in Marine Science. It's open access, so anyone can go and read it. So there's your Sunday um, afternoon taken care of. So this <laughs> is um, a, the first work of, of this workshop idea, and so Katia has surveyed... Uh, all the schools across the Great Southern Reef. So we're talking New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, uh, Western Australia and Tassie and all in the public sector, primary school teachers to um, get to know how, uh, if they're teaching marine science in their classroom and how are they doing that or if they're not teaching it, what w do they need to to support them to, to bring, teach more marine science in the classroom? And so we've got that survey results in that paper. So that is sort of the first um, instance that really shows that evidence base that it's not been as taught as regularly as what we would have liked to in that primary school level. And so we're now using that data to, to try and figure out innovative ways or familiar tools to uh, um, give that support and resources to those teachers. But I think we're going to have to get Katia on to dig into that a little bit deeper and um, I think you've already sort of said that she you've basically put her forward as someone that we can I chat have, to. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. So look, the book is titled The Great Southern Reef. Thank you so much to our celebrity author, ocean literacy advocate and research scientist, Prue Francis. Uh, we look forward to getting you back on the show and catching up with you again. Cheers, Prue. Yeah, we'd love to. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Cabin Boy. Thanks, Prue. There you go. And we have some breaking news. We most certainly do. Hot off the press from Dave Donnelly. Confirmation, the Malacuta whale is female. Definitely not Migaloo. 
So there you go. The farm has been calm. Ah, thank goodness. I like how we have to, you know, personalise the whale. So, yeah, it's <laughs> any whale death is, you know, a tragedy. But if it's a personalised one that you know, you know, it's even more. A little bit of other news that I forgot to mention. Uh, Lisa Blair, who we had on the show a couple of uh, weeks ago, she sailed solo nonstop around Antarctica. She sailed into Geelong Friday night, um, did a dinner, a talk and dinner at the Royal Geelong Yacht Club, and has now already left and heading up to Sydney on her boat. So, <laughs> Of course she is. She doesn't stop. It's amazing. No. <laughs> Which is a good segue to what you're going to talk to us about, isn't it, well, Kevin Boy? Well, long, cold Melbourne winter, you're thinking of uh, somewhere to go. Have you ever thought about uh, chartering a yacht? So uh, I... I, the concern for me is, like, what happens if I run it up onto the reef? Well, see, that's interesting because there's a, two types. There is the yacht charter where you're fully crewed with the skipper and you just sit back drinking margaritas and, you know. and Or there is what's called a bareboat charter, which you are the captain and you are in charge. You are covering the insurance and everything like that. <laughs> uh, look, the most popular is the Whit Sundays. So uh, if anyone mentions yacht charters, Whit Sunday always comes to mind. I actually had my honeymoon on a, and it sounds a little bit inappropriate, a bareboat charter. Yeah. So. <laughs> and so you were in charge or was your partner in charge? Uh, no, no, I was. It was way back in the uh, 93 and that's, back then they had smaller boats. Now the boats in all the fleets are like 40 foot or something. We chartered a little 26 foot mono hull so, uh, and got ourselves around. Um. You don't need a boat license, so uh, tick that off. You kind of need to know a little bit about um, boating, but when you sign up and pay your money, it's not cheap. They will give you like a four-hour kind of um, session on what to do and whatnot. So it's kind of really controlled. So you don't need to know too much about sailing. So most of them from the Sundays come from Shoot Harbour. So you can fly up to Shoot Harbour, pick your boat. Now, I um, actually got... A few of the um, charter companies up. Most of them nowadays are catamarans, so uh, around about the forty-foot mark. And the advantage of a catamaran is you can sleep eight to ten people, so um, you can kind of share the cost across the uh, week. So it's a bit of a party boat. And is when you say eight to ten people, is that comfortably eight to ten people, or are you um, all kind of top and tailing each other? I'd say comfortably, unless the wind blows up. But uh, well, that's the other advantage of a catamaran. You're not going to uh, be rocking around and all that. So, uh, but you can still get monohulls for those, you know, people who really do want to sail. Um, look, Ooh, am I? T- t- is there a hint of um, yes, yes. discrepancy between the mono and the single? Well, hull? I always say it's like uh, it's the cat and dog people always separate, and there's the cat and mono hole people too. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's another topic. We'll yeah. cover that another week, I'm sure. <laughs> but there's a uh, you know, so with Sundays protected by the Great Barrier Reef, and amongst that in that little protected zone, and when I say protected, it still does blow up and get choppy a bit. There's about 74 islands to explore. You are kind of limited to where you go you must call in every night to say where you're going and they'll give you the thumbs up so uh if you're going to do something stupid they'll they'll say nah don't do that i suggest you go here most of them are mooring ball balls so uh you just pull up pick up the mooring ball and then you're safe for the night um trouble is you can there's the day ball so you can if you pick it up during the day you can only you have to leave by a certain hour but if you get in there i think it's after two o'clock you can then stay 24 hours so yeah so that's pretty easy if you do miss out on a um 
a ball, you can anchor, but you've got to move further out out of the uh, so you're not damaging the reef. So it's good to kind of plan yourself ahead. And really, it's not about sailing; it's about partying with eight to ten people on board, isn't it? <laughs> Well, and the other thing too with that is when you often pull up into a cove, there are other boats there and they've got their tender out and they're all sitting on the beach and having a bit of a walk around and the party sort of extends from one boat to the next boat to the next boat. And um, yeah, then the person who's the least hungover has got to drive the next day. Is it something like that, cabin boy? Something like that, but you do have to be under 0.05. I think I imagine. Yeah, to be in charge of a... uh, Always drink responsibly. Even on a boat. So, yeah. Um, If you are going, I suggest getting the book called 100 Magic Miles. It's a book put out about the Sunday, and it tells you all about the Anchorages and uh, the islands to visit and all that. And you can also pull into the marina at Hamilton Island. So you can fly in and out too because that has an airport there too. So... So there's a few options. Yeah, and so it's like, so first thing you do is what you make a phone call, make your booking. You see that there's a book, there's one available, and when like what is what's the variation in costs? Like how many zeros are you spending when you come to doing this? Well, hopefully you're sitting down. I looked it up: five nights, <laughs> six days. It's about ten thousand dollars, but you're not paying. You know that's your accommodation. Um, if you're sharing it with ten people, that's not so bad. Um, there are extra mooring costs if you go into Hamilton Island or I think Daydream Island also charges you if you are more off their island. But it seems a lot, but it's not that bad once you kind of share the cost amongst everyone else. And if you do, um, they will fully stock your boat too. So they'll give you food. They'll tell you what you're going to cook that night. Uh, they'll give you alcohol and everything. So it's really, uh, once you're on the boat, you don't have to do too much. I could do with a bit of hot weather at the moment. <laughs> well, we were probably, last time I was there, probably about 18, 20 years ago, our kids were like under five, two of them. Uh, there was two couples on a mono hole, four kids under five, not a problem. And then we had another two couple on a catamaran and they had young kids too. So it's good for kids too. It's pretty safe that way. You know, life jackets when you're on deck, look after them. But the boats are big enough. So it's not that bad to uh, take young kids along too. That sounds fantastic. That's a nice way to finish up, isn't it? Yeah, well, the best way is to uh, remind you that the average temperature up in the Whit Sundays in July is 24.3 degrees. (laughs) Hey, you've been listening to Radio Marinara. Thank you so much, Cade, for uh, keeping me company because it has been a big thanks to Rachel too. She's been behind the uh, panel there navigating us through some treachery, but uh, we made it through. So, yeah. And welcome, thank you to our guest Marilyn Olive from the Hobson's Bay Wetlands Centre, Dave Donnelly from Killer Wales Australia, and Prue Francis from Deakin University. A big bye from us. The doctors are coming up. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.